Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. This interview was recorded on October 4th, 2015. My guest is John Lahr. John Lahr is the author of a collection now of Profiles and Reviews, titled Joyride, which appeared in The New Yorker. He's the author of several biographies, including Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh, a biography of his father, Notes on a Cowardly Lion. His father was Bert Lahr, who was the Cowardly Liar in The Wizard of Oz. There are 16 nonfiction books which he either wrote or edited, two novels, five plays, four adaptations, and he co-authored with Elaine Stritch, Elaine Stritch at Liberty, the former artistic director at Lincoln Center, and the Guthrie, which means he's been both a critic, because he was a critic for The New Yorker for many years, and an artistic director, and of course began by being the son of a famous comedian. So I want to start there before we get into what we've been talking about off the air, which is about theater. Obviously, you were born after The Wizard of Oz was first shown, which was 1939, and you were born in 1941. In the early 50s, it became a yearly show on television and I guess became a classic at that particular time. Before that, when you were a little kid, was it even something that your father discussed, or was it just another film? First of all, Dad didn't tell us he was an actor until we were about eight. You know, being a comedian who started in vaudeville and burlesque, it was a very hard way to make a living. 48 weeks a year, five shows a day, three changes of cities a week. And he wanted us to have a good education. He didn't get past the sixth grade and have a life that he considered more comfortable. Of course, a writer's life he never wanted for my sister, who's also a writer and sculptress, and myself. But we were aware of the show. We saw it. There are infrared photos of us watching it in the family album. I'm holding my sister's hand, and we were scared, as everyone was scared, by the munchkins, etc. But, you know, really, we grew up with an appreciation of his particular genius. Most people nowadays remember only The Cowardly Lion, but for 20 years he was a star of Broadway. I mean, Cole Porter wrote shows for him. E.Y. Harburg and Harold Arlen wrote shows for him. Igor Stravinsky wrote a music for a review that he was in. And he, most importantly, premiered on Broadway Waiting for Godot. So his career was vast and interesting, and I was old enough say, to see the premiere of Wedding for Godot in Florida, where the play was billed as a laugh riot of two continents. So we, we understood and admired him as a, a performer. You know, looking back on it, a lot of my own interest in biography and what I do both at The New Yorker as a pro- profile writer and in my biographies 
is try to bear witness, to bear better witness to theatricals and the lives of theatricals and the making of their art. And that was something I saw up close and personal all through Dad's life. As sensational a person as he was on stage, he was equally sensationally morose off it. And so the only way I could... He was unreachable, actually. He was present at the conception, but he was a sort of an absent presence at home. Lovely, generous in his own way. Not Well, not generous, but benign. Not, not, not an ogre in any way, but just in his own head. And the only way I could reach him was to write a biography of him. And I started writing that biography when I was 20. It was published when I was 28. And uh, it was fortunate for me because that book was reviewed on the front page of the uh, New York Times Sunday section. And, and it made my name, and suddenly I was a critic. I had a reputation. He was still alive then? Or? He died a week before the book was finished, so we never saw it. And what I learned from doing that biography of the, over and above getting to know my father was it taught me a lot of the, you might say, negative things. It defined what I did not want to do with both a biography and although I didn't know I was going to be a critic then, uh, with subsequently with criticism. When I read through all his reviews, I was startled. I mean, it was a revelatory how badly written they were. They carried no life of the theater. Not only that, and this was shocking, he had 50 years of really, generally speaking, great reviews. They had no sense of him. So he was famous, but unseen. Is this people like Brooks Atkinson you're talking about? Yeah, those were good reviews. Those were good reviews. But as profiles, or as a, as a look into who he was, nobody got near him. Richard Avedon might, in the famous photo he made of him in, as Estragon or Wayne, if you could do. But in terms of interviews and a sense of how he lived and what his values were or what was inside him that sought expression through his art, nobody got close. And, and a lot of good people like Atkinson, like Alastair Cook, Walter Kerr, had a go, but they were inadequate. So when I read all the biographies at the time of theater people, and still to this day, it's mostly anecdotage. And it's anecdotage without ideas. That to me is useless. My goal as a critic and as a biographer is to put the artist and his art in the context of their time. If these people are, as I think they are, actors are, athletes of the spirit, stars are their own greatest creation. And they're sort of metaphors, as are plays. And that means that they're there to be interpreted. These people, whoever, whether we're talking about Al Pacino or Burt Lahr or Buster Keaton, when they are of their time, they reflect their time, and they incarnate a lot of things that the culture can't articulate. So it's the job of the critic to explain that, to make meaning out of that. Is there any difference then in talking about a critic of theater versus a critic of film or literature? There is and there isn't. There's a great difference in the context of American theater because there's very little theater criticism and almost entirely theater reviewing. You know, a critic makes meaning. A reviewer makes a market. A critic is there to look at the theater and look after it. A reviewer is looking after the audience. It's true. A critic is trying to put a play in context and to think about it. And 
a, a reviewer is essentially telling you the plot of the story. It's giving you an opinion. Generally, globally speaking, of course, there's some really good reviewers and good reviewers who do, within the limited space that they're allotted by their editors, manage to say something, although not sufficient by my standards. Uh, but generally speaking, the people dishing out the opinion have not ever written a joke, written a play, taken an acting lesson, worked in the theater. They have an opinion. They may think something is good. They just don't know why it's good. What uh, you said in an interview not long ago is that you're talking about the difference between critics versus crickets. Yeah, that got me in a lot of hot water. That's not my phrase. That's Mike Nichols's phrase. That's the issue. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of opinion. But there's not a lot of information. John Lahr, when I look at that, what I'm looking at really is our own subjective viewpoint. And unless I'm an expert in something, my subjective viewpoint carries the same weight as anyone. Absolutely. There's no right and wrong in criticism. There's just good argument. But your arguments have to be supported by something. That's my burden of my song. Let's talk a little bit more about this because this forms on some level the basis of a lot of Joyride. What I noticed in particular in Joyride is that you do try to keep opinion out of all of this. You're explaining, but you're not saying this is good, this is bad. Occasionally, you know, you'll say someone is miscast. You know, what Joyride is, we generally see plays in the context of no context. And therefore, the Joyride is really a collection of profiles of most of the important playwrights of the American 20th century with a few Europeans thrown in, and directors, and then my reviews of their work. So this is work that I admire, that I like, that constitutes a, a huge part of what we call the, our contemporary theater culture. And the very fact that I'm focusing on these people, the very fact that I'm trying to draw them out and understand what they were doing, how they made it, says what my view is about them. In the case of when I review a play and I like it, I'm there to evoke it and celebrate the accomplishment. So, yes, I've written many negative reviews. This is called Joyride because it's a sort of collection of pieces that in my 21 years, which incidentally, is the longest run of a, a drama critic in the history of The New Yorker. These are the things that gave me joy. Not just joy, they really shaped how I thought about things. You know, you can't see an August Wilson play and not have a completely different idea of African-American life, you know. When you, when you see Mike Nichols's production of Death of a Salesman, he actually focused on something that brought absolutely new light to the nature of why Willie Loman is so unhappy. He actually understood the notion and was able to incarnate the idea of envy on stage and how that operates in a man. Willie doesn't claim success. He doesn't claim his life because he's eaten alive by comparison with others. And that was just a wonderful, illuminating thing. That's a review. The profiles are meant to embrace everything and to also synthesize a lot of, a lot of work. It's not necessarily the place to be parsing some work versus, and I do sometimes. I don't like all of Tony Kushner's plays. There's some of Sarah Rule's work that doesn't work, and it's not without criticism. But one of the, the things I feel strongly about is a lot of the reading public gets off on 
really reckless, irresponsible, and very easy to write smugness or snark. Easy. Nothing easier. But, you know, if you actually make things, if you've made a book, if you've made a play, and you know what that entails, you have to find a language which is discriminating but not annihilating. And here's the truth. A critic has a life of no risk. And that is a crucial thing, and it must make you humble and not only watch yourself but watch your language in the face of what other people are creating. I feel very strongly about that. You made an interesting comment, which is not that something is necessarily good or bad, but as you said with the Sarah Rule play, it doesn't work. Sometimes. The reason why it's called playwriting, W-R-I-G-H-T, is that it's about construction, like wheel writing. It's about making this thing, this fun machine, this idea machine, function in such a way as to create surprises and insight for the audience. And there are all sorts of hurdles that can topple this ambition, you know. And when you're there responding to it, anything that sort of stops you from suspending your disbelief is uh, an issue. You can report that. But generally speaking, I like going to the theater. I like being taken on trips. I like being shown things and made to feel things. And in our Puritan culture, you know, to say that something is sensational is a pejorative, which I think is ridiculous, because anything that gives you a sensation has, you know, a feeling that's one of the things, the important things you go to theater for, which is to feel ideas. John Lahr, what do you think underlying it now that we've had a century of film is the difference between going to a theater and seeing a live play and going to a theater with an audience and seeing a film? Oh, that's a really good question. First thing, and the most important thing about going to a film is the film is not going to change. The performance you see on a Monday is going to be exactly the same performance you see on a Friday. And nothing you and the audience can do, not eating your popcorn, not calling your girlfriend, not, uh, you know, smooching in the backseat, nothing is going to affect that film. It's going to run unchanged. In the theater, which is real time, the audience absolutely affects the performance. One of the reasons for writing Joyride or putting it together is that, like Tallulah said to the actress who uh, wanted to go into the theater, she said, don't be an actress, darling, be an audience. One of the reasons for wanting to put the theater and give people more information, lively information about the theater, is to make it more fun, make it more accessible, make them understand where the plays they're seeing fit in the body of the work of the artist. Now, The more you educate an audience, the more they know, the more present they are at the event. And what I like about being in the audience is that there's a certain responsibility that I have to be alert, to be there, to think, to be with a group. So the group experience, not only are the actors feeding the audience, but the audience is feeding the actors. You can be in a bad audience, and that will affect the nature of the production. And another thing, in a film... You see what the director wants you to see. In a play, your focus is broader, and to a certain degree, you have to make the meaning of the play. It's a game of hide-and-seek, and you're directed toward the meaning. You have to work a lot more, I think, 
than you do in a film. And I think that's both the pleasure of the theater and the problem of the theater, because for younger generations, digitally inclined, everything comes to them. They don't have to work. Just Google it. Up comes your answer. No work, no learning. Move right along. And that is a dilemma. But the other wonderful thing about the theater is that the performance, the actual physical performance is sexy. The people in space, people who can actually not get it right. You never see the outcuts in movies except at the end occasionally for a joke. You never see people lose a line. You never see a glitch in the set. It's all perfect. Within the context of theater, there's always an element of caprice or danger or risk that's always present, which makes it exciting to be there. You know, I had a production in which, in England, where the set, something was meant to come down, a, a sort of a walkway, and it got stuck halfway up, and the actors were trapped, and there was no way for them to get off or the play to go on. So we had to just ask everybody to leave because they were stuck there. But I mean, that can happen. But I mean, generally speaking, it makes it a more, a real experience in some ways. That's not to say better. It just makes it different, which is what I think your question was. Then, of course, there's that in-between thing of a filmed stage play watching that. And what I find that is that you're not getting the director and you're not getting yourself. Well, I sort of agree with you there. But I think that because of the close-up, which in some ways is a detriment to plays in which atmosphere and the pressure of the space is part of the drama, Pinter or Noel Coward, where the minute you take the camera outside the room, when you do that, it's like pricking a balloon. A lot of the air goes out of the tension. Being in the physical presence of a set that is trapping that energy and you're there watching it is it can be very exciting or dangerous or and illuminating. That doesn't work so well in film. But where the film can be excellent, I find, is like in Shakespeare, where the close-up allows you actually to really hear the language in a way that you just can't do in the theatrical experience. It also guides you in a way which I don't like. But, you know, I'd rather be able to hear very clearly. I've had really good experiences of Shakespeare in film, especially. You talk about Shakespeare in Joyride, John Lahr, and there's a director who you see John Barton. Yeah, who is very insistent on comprehension. I recently saw a version of King Lear, and I'm not that familiar with King Lear. And Act One, I didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, this is a problem in Shakespeare. I mean, the comedians have been making a good living parodying Shakespeare, the Beyond the Fringe and things like that. But, you know, John Barton taught Shakespeare. He's founded the Shakespeare, Royal Shakespeare Company. What I was covering there, I called it Shakespeare Night Court. He was teaching first-class A1 American actors, people like Holly Hunter, Kevin Klein, about speaking Shakespeare and finding the clues of what Shakespeare meant by the syntax the, and the iambic pentameter of the, his, his speech. It was just illuminating to understand that speech and how Shakespeare used the stresses to enforce meaning. And essentially, you know, everything in Shakespeare is dialectic. Is, uh, you, two is the only number you need in Shakespeare. It's, it's, it's thesis antithesis the whole, the whole time, even in talk. So I was exploring, that, reporting on that idea. And I like thinking about Shakespeare because 
of a lot of contemporary, especially cinematic storytelling, we owe to Shakespeare. If a scene begins with a plus, it's going to either end in a minus or a plus minus, which is irony. And the sort of the short scenes, the shift of mood and tension, all that is starts with Shakespeare and how his storytelling began. And it's fun to try and explain a play, an ancient play, to a modern audience by giving it facts about Elizabethan life or the nature. It just, it makes it come alive in a different way, you know. We can only see a play when it's being presented. We can always read a play. I'm kind of nervous about reading a play before I see it. Well, there are those people, I think Harold Bloom is one, who prefers to read Shakespeare and in his mind create the mise-en-scene. It's a different experience because really a script is only a suggestion. It's not the whole thing. It's a, it's like a traffic plan. So it's a different experience. The reading experience can be really pleasurable. It's fun to read August Wilson's plays as just literature because they're poetic, they're lively. It's an idiom which is really vital and vivacious and a world for a white audience that is completely exotic. But it's much more exciting to be in the audience of the play, not only because it has set and sound, but because, and this is something that Wilson actually wanted, he wanted his plays done on Broadway, where only 3% of the audience is African-American. And he wanted it for a very specific reason, which I think is wholly correct. When you go to an, audio, an August Wilson play, and by the way, one of the, there's the Broadway theaters is named after him, where the African Americans laugh is not where the white audience laughs. And where the white audience laughs is very often not where the African American audience laughs. And in that intersection, the audience is learning an awful lot about each other. He wanted that mashup. And it's very educational and very exciting because not only are you learning from the stage, but you're learning from the audience. And by the way, his plays are large. And of course, in our culture, form follows money and things cost more. And therefore, it's quite hard to get a collection of, of any kind of good actors, and especially 15 of them in one play, all with nice cameos, a bit like Shakespeare. So there should be, I think, a kind of August Wilson repertory company. Failing that, I'm, I'm glad to say that now HBO, with Denzel Washington producing, is going to do one Wilson play a year for the next decade so that there will be outstanding, at least television, uh, representations of the plays for everybody to see in case locally they can't field you know, an, an A-team to, to do the plays. But it's always better in principle be, to be seeing uh, the play in three dimensions, which is what, what it's meant to be, than it is simply to read it. But of course, we all can get an enormous amount out of reading them. That brings us Tennessee Williams, where a lot of the plays never even get produced, I mean, other than Menagerie and... You know, Richard, that's just not true. This year... Tennessee Williams's royalties will be $1.5 million. So a lot of people are watching a lot of plays that are not just Glass Menagerie and A Streetcar Named Desire. 
that's been a revival of a lot of his later plays. Yeah, sure. the later plays, there were a couple of plays that Williams did after 1965, which is when he is, in the conventional narrative, supposed to have gone off his game and, and become a dead playwright. He wrote innumerable plays after that. He wrote a play that had a good Broadway run that Clive Barnes said would be one of his best-remembered plays, which it won't be. Small Craft Warnings was called. It was a success. But he wrote an absolutely brilliant play that I saw called Gennadigus Fraulein. It was in 1965, and it was his attempt to find a new audience and write in the new manner of the of the French absurdists. It was his attempt to write a, a, a kind of Ionesco play. That's what he said. And it was great. It involved a gigantic bird called a cockalooney bird. And it was very serious. It was about an old opera singer who was forced to live in a in a hotel and on the keys and his, whose eyes are being pecked out by birds. And if I describe the plot, it's it just silly because you won't get it. But it was a wonderful show. And it got a couple of really excellent revivals, one with Elizabeth Ashley at Hartford. But the history of American theater is a history of first nights. And this was a bad first night. And the play never got so it's a really good play. His last play, which is called A House Not Meant to Stand, which he died in 1983 and it was put on in Chicago in 1982, was very good. It's a, it's a really good play. Time said it was the best play since Night of the Iguana, which it is. And when the head of the Goodman, who was a guy called Gregory Mosher, moved to Lincoln Center to become head of Lincoln Center, he asked to do it in New York. And Lady Maria St. Just, then alive and at her most draconian, although she'd never seen the production, refused to let it transfer. So we have yet to have Williams's last play produced in New York, which is a shame. And what was that f- first play you talked about, the one from 65? It was part of a double bill, but it was called Gennadiges Fraulein, G-N-A-D-I-G-E-S, Fraulein. And it's a one act then? Yeah. What was the name of the uh, two plays together? The name of the play, the collective title of the play, in which the Gennadigus Fraulein was one piece, the slapstick tragedy. John Law, what do you think about politics in a general sense, politics and its relation to theater? I've talked to artistic directors who talk about what's very important afterward is the conversation that theatergoers might have. And certainly we know about agitprop, Theater, as all art, asks questions, doesn't necessarily give us answers. But what I'm seeing is that it's also a political, even if it's not a political tool, it changes us politically or can. This is a really good question. And I I have a, a lot of answers to it. Everything about theater going is political. If you go to a musical, you know, people always talk about political theater. And what they really mean is left-wing political theater. The most successful political theater ever invented in the history of the world was American Musical. Because the American Musical sells the dream of the culture in a way that makes it absolutely irresistible. If you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? Something's coming, something good, if you can wait. You know, when you walk through a storm, keep your head up high. These mantras form the basis of a faith in the culture and the democracy and the working out of the the culture. So putting that aside, because that's not what these people talk about, political theater, 
especially now in our culture. I live in London, and that's a very good place to think about America. There's a reason why the, the greatest books about American culture have been written by people who were outsiders. You know, de Tocqueville, Dickens, Fanny Trollope, Gore Vidal, James Baldwin, all these people who comment on America lived outside it for a long period of time because you're not infected by the deliriums of the culture and the sort of 24-7 hysterical ranting coming at you from the box. It doesn't happen that way in Europe. When I come here, the thing I think after 9-11, it's very clear to me that terrorism works. The Americans act as if they are not in a terrorized culture. But everything that you're looking at in America is exhibits the presenting symptoms of a terrorized people. What the culture says when you read about terrorism, the discussion is only about killing people. But the goal of terrorism is not just to kill people, but to kill thought and to drive people into fundamentalist positions where they are making quick and bad decisions. They don't want to deal with any ambiguity. They don't want to deal with complexity. They want want to get the problem solved, buried, and finished. So you got an immigrant problem, easy. Send them all home. Build a wall. Lots of really dumb ideas that are not thought out. And you can just look at the, the tangle in, the, in Washington or Iraq, and you can see the culture doesn't need people to come over here to bomb it. It's imploding from within. Now, this is where theater is important because, first of all, terrorism wants to isolate people and push them into positions of fear. And theater brings people together. They're there together. They're working to think together as a collective about something. They're also... And this is crucial to why theater is important. Most of the stories we're told on television and in films are corporate agreements. The individual voice counts for not so much. Not so in theater. Theater is the last bastion of the individual voice in in public storytelling. And therefore, the voice pushes you, pushes the audience to think outside the box. So theater is a form, and theater going, I feel, I argue, the, the political aspect of it is it's a form of anti-terrorism. It refuses thoughtlessness. It wants to live with ambivalence and complexity. It's looking for different answers and, and, and getting people engaged in a discussion about that. So that's my answer to the political question with a small p of why theater is in its essence, and especially now, political. Broadway, on the other hand, has these corporate musicals. Absolutely. But that's political, too. But it's consolidating very dearly beloved principles of capitalism. As Woody Allen said, if it wasn't show business, they'd call it show show. Let's face it, the whole notion of American notion, now toxic notion of fame and celebrity, comes from Broadway, seeing your name in lights. That's Broadway. That's not Hollywood. In Hollywood, when films started, they wanted to keep the names of the, all the stars off the marquee. So it's selling an ideology. It is selling the very thing that the other theater we were talking about is not. I mean, it's selling escape. And nobody ever went broke in America selling escape, you know. It's selling not thinking. And the passion for ignorance is the great sort of struggle in American life, you know. 
when I spoke with Sondheim once, uh, I complained about all of these Hollywood stars coming to Broadway. He said, that's nothing new. Yeah, he's right. They, they, went, they went to see Burbage mm-hmm. in Shakespeare's day. Absolutely. You have to get Tuchus's on seats, right? One issue about theater, say, is the cost, which also keeps people away. My mom, her very first show was I Married an Angel with Vera's Arena, mm-hmm. 1938, I think. She was 14 years old, and she sat in the balcony for 75 cents, which translates to $12. It's impossible to go to Broadway now for $12. Well, it's impossible to go to Broadway for $112. I mean, I think that's a great issue. It's it's an interesting issue because if you talk about cost, you're talking about Broadway, essentially. Yes, it's expensive, but... One way of getting around this is subsidized uh, cheap seats, student seats. In, at the National Theatre in England, you can go to see a play for 12 pounds, 10 pounds last year. I think it's 12 pounds now. Everybody is aware of the uh, the cost issue. And, of course, the only way to get young people into the audience, into the theatrical experience, is to find some way of uh, offering uh, reduced seats. I think it's criminal to be asking these prices. But the one one thing I mentioned in Joyride is that, you know, the dilemma is it's a handicraft industry in a technological age. And it, the costs are massive. The union costs are massive. The dilemma is the theater is in danger of a turkey voting itself on early Christmas because if there are no young people to be interested and go on and carry on the tradition, but they seem to be. I mean, people find the theater because at its best, it's very exciting. And people are aware of the problem, and they, you know, there's a lot of theater you can go to that isn't, uh, isn't as as onerous. But I agree, it's a problem. I'm not, I'm not personally responsible for it, <laughs> and I find now that I, I'm not uh, anymore the the critic of the New Yorker, but just write profiles for them. That when I pay for my tickets, uh, you know, I get a little choked <laughs> at the at the prices. John Lar, like your opinion about colorblind casting. A complicated one. Good question. I have to admit to being mixed and uncomfortable about being mixed on the subject. Let's just take uh, Tennessee Williams' all-black production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I have seen, and it's been in my possession while I've, in the 12 years that I was writing the biography, a letter from T- Tennessee Williams asking uh, a letter answering the request for an all-black production in his time. And he absolutely didn't want it. Absolutely. Now, I, I think for a lot of reasons, it doesn't make sense in that kind of production because it changes the historical argument of the, of the, of the production. Were there black slave owners? Yeah, I suppose there were. But, the, but uh, uh, no, I didn't mean slave owners. I meant plantation owners. Right. Although I saw a fascinating play about a black slave owner. But it changes the discussion entirely. Or I saw an all-black production of Death of a Salesman, and I'm sorry that it just doesn't. It's not. It beggars the imagination that uh, that Willie Loman all-black would have the Northeast Coast in the time period that. Then you're you're dealing with it, in a, and, and automatically, when I said that at the time, I got a lot of, you know, you're a racist. Well, I'm not a racist, but the fa- the way I answer these people is, this. You're right. Let, let's everything be cast. Let's just have open casting. Now, August Wilson 
wrote some of the most beautiful monologues for women that exist in 20th century drama. And men, but the women's monologues are great. Let's let white people do that. They'd howl and say, no, that's no good because it's incredible. And what's more, you, wouldn't, you couldn't believe it. That's the reality that it, it, in certain kinds of plays, it, to me, and I may be proved an old codger on this, but it, it doesn't work. And in other plays, it, it is perfectly fine. I'm waiting for Godot. Plays where, where that is not a sort of a part of the debate of the play, it seems to me okay. I mean, you can do Death of a Salesman. I mean, but it, it, for me, it does not enhance the play. And what August Wilson would say, and I think he had a really good argument, but it's a hard argument, is that for black actors to take those parts, and this is, I'm sure that there'll be a lot of people who disagree with me and with August, that in itself is a form of alienation because they should be making their own stories, which is what he was doing, making their own poetry, writing about their own community and finding an audience for it. And that's, frankly, what his great achievement was. We're coming to their stories and listening to their poetry and seeing their lives. And we can't participate in that in, in, in terms of performing it, you know, even though it's brilliant stuff. I have very mixed feelings because, you know, I would assume that there were certainly plays where the race of the character or even sometimes the gender would make no difference Absolutely. on a one-by-one -one basis. Absolutely. One of the things I like about Hamilton, which is a musical that I wish I could come out of retirement and write about because I think it's so terrific. But one of the things I like of that, that is it's a multicultural uh, experience. And you might say this is the 21st century. So you have, you have Asians, you have uh, Chicanos, you have uh, African-Americans, you have whites. It's a mosh pit. But this is a musical told in rap, so that to a certain degree, it's already in some other, uh, lyrically speaking, it's already in some heightened mythic world, uh, orally inventive world that isn't, we're not asked, we're, you know, it's a sort of a, a fantasy version of America, but, and a good one. But it, in that case, you know, all power to it. It's part of the greatness of the, of the production. You know, we talked about the politics, and most playwrights are uh, politically progressive. There are a couple exceptions. I don't know the politics necessarily of Neil LeBute other than the fact that he's Mormon, but I do know that David Mamet has turned very far to the right. What do you think that's about? Oh, well, I wish I knew. I don't ask David those questions, uh, uh, and I, I don't really know. Uh, I, I mean, it's not a I don't. I, I can't answer it. I don't think it's necessarily made him a better... I have a great deal of... I mean, I have a profile on him. I admire his early plays especially. I, I think it, it, insofar as it's made him more fundamentalist, it's made him less ambivalent uh, and, and, and therefore less complex. And I mourn that. John Lahr, why do you think uh, we see so little of Clifford Odette's plays these days? You know, I can tell you why we uh, we do. First of all, we we are starting to see more Clifford Odette's plays. When I came to the New Yorker in 1992, I I did so with the express intention of using the New Yorker as a bully pulpit, both for Williams, who at the time whose reputation was much in decline, and also for Odette's, who I think is of 
really underrated uh, playwright. Uh, and the reason why uh, there weren't a lot of Odette's productions in New York prior to 1992 was that it was known that the critic of the New York Times, Frank Rich, did not like Odette's. And therefore, <clears throat> no producer or no a regional uh, you know, repertory theater company guy was going to risk a whole uh, production uh, thinking that they were going to come up against this bias. Subsequently, thanks really to Andre Bishop uh, at Lincoln Center, there have been two stellar production of Odette's plays, Awake and Sing and uh, uh, The Golden Boy. Uh, terrific productions, which showed the uh, showed the, the the skill, the construction, this, the, 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 the construction skills and the narrative skills of uh, and got a lot of the quality of the plays uh, out there. And I, and so I think, you know, there, he, he wrote, he wrote nine plays, uh, between 1935 and 1941. And then he wrote three plays in the fifties. Uh, one of whom, one of which was country girl, also a very good play, which was recently done on, on Broadway by, directed by Mike Nichols. Um, I I think those plays are terrific. So they they they're getting they're not going out of the discussion, and I I just think part of it need, people need to know more about the you know Odette was a, a a fascinating person, and probably the best, well one of the best theater biographies that exists exists about him, you know Clifford Odette's playwright uh, by uh, Marjorie Brenner Gibson is her name. An excellent book, and his own book, his own diary of 1940, uh, uh, called uh, "The World Is R- R- Ripe," um, gives you a sense of a man who sort of split between artistic success and uh, commercial success, and that division is extremely dramatic. and a, And a study of a kind, uh, especially in the 40s, at, just at the cusp of the depression, uh, at the end of the depression, before the war. Of um, the sort of psychic struggle of this of re- of this restless talent, and uh, uh, if you wanted to look at the dilemma of the corruption of celebrity, or the struggle of celebrity, because he did he did write the the general received opinion is that he lost it at the when he went into Hollywood, which is not true. Uh, he he ended up writing not only the Country Girl but uh, another play which. Uh, I'm going to block on its name now. Um, w- was uh, nominated but lost the Pulitzer. I'm going to block on its name. Sorry, uh, but he also uh, wrote uh, "Sweet Smell of Success," which has got to be one of the most interesting films about Hollywood. That, so I wouldn't call that uh, a bad innings. But the, you know, part of my game as a critic uh, and a writer is to. Rather like an optometrist, when you go in to check your glasses and he puts different lenses in your glasses, is just to give people more information and 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 tell and 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 give them more news about the writing and the people to to give them a, a, another another way of looking at the story of these people and the and the works they made to change the discussion a little bit, shift things around to hopefully let in a little more air around these productions. I, I get the sense, actually, that on some level, since 
I'm not a theater director and I'm not an artistic director. On some level, you're saying to the artistic directors, take another look at these people. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. In some cases, you don't have to tell an artistic director to take another look at uh, Tony Kushner or Sarah Rule or Wally Shawn. They're very well in their sights. But in some cases, with older playwrights or uh, you know, Odette's being a good example, or even Williams in the later plays, take a look at these. Like, you know, I'm actually a lobby. Uh, certain of my friends are in, in artistic directorships to do plays, and and they have over time. Uh, so I, you know, uh, you know, they 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 still belong in the discussion. They have something to say to us now. Well, um, a couple of years ago, I believe this is the play we're talking about. So I'll have to change it if it isn't. Um, a couple of years ago, Marin Theater did Joe Turner's Come and Gone, just a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's the great play. And next spring, Cal Shakes is doing it here in the Bay Area, and a lot of people saw that earlier production. Brought up a question of seeing, I mean, you know, if you see a movie a second time, you're seeing the second, the movie a second time, and for me, I'm not really that interested in seeing a movie a second time, but a play would be different or would it? Yes and no. I mean, you see, most people think that the plot is the play. That's what most theater reviewing is about. This is the plot. And God forbid, if you're a critic, you should tell the plot because you've given away everything. Well, in fact, you've given away nothing. The plot is only the the the, the, the line that the uh, that the writer uses to hang his ideas and his observations. And so that each time you're seeing a new production, you're seeing an, another director's interpretation of the story. And that involves an awful lot of interpolation and suggestion. So new lighting, uh, m- different business, uh, they can sometimes call out whole ranges of feeling and characters that go unexplored in another production. And, um, or, or conversely, in some productions uh, that want to, like the, the, the very successful production of Glass Menagerie, which was on uh, Broadway a, a couple of years ago uh, with uh, Cherry Jones, which I, I hated. I thought it was a very bad production because they cut out the major themes of uh, the major moments of the of, of the play. They uh, that it just was like tearing off a limb as far as I was concerned. But it it was slick, and it was effective without being penetrating. But it went, you know so that but I've seen maybe I've seen Glass Menagerie what ten times. So each time. You see different approaches to it. You, I, I saw one production, which I actually, I don't like to dislike things to, to, in the extreme, but I went bananas with this. They brought Tennessee Williams out at the beginning of Glass Menagerie, drunk, and he sits down at the typewriter and he, and he starts to write what is the prologue of the play. And then, so you've got this writer who's watching his childhood, his youth, in the scene, taking notes, so that they essentially rewrote the play with this character in it. Now, that would drive you know that's an interpretation. I think it's a kind of a cockamamie interpretation. But there are all these issues. You know, it's a way of look. Each time you see a play, you're going to see it with new eyes and a new audience, 
and different actors. So the, it's just like hearing, you know, go, you go to a, a concert and you, if people play the same piece of music. You've heard it a hundred times and sometimes it's sublime and sometimes they miss passages and, or, or, or vulgarize passages. And that's, that's why you go again. Uh, again, Marin did a production of Glass Menagerie, and that production was all Tom and very little Amanda and Laura, and it was fine. Well, I don't know if that I would have liked it, but if you, <laughs> I mean, you know, horses for courses there. <laughs> but you can do that. I mean, you can change the focus just by the And, direction. you know, you can, and I suppose there are those who would argue that you must. In, order, in, in some instances, I mean, for well, instance... Carousel is the perfect example. Well, yeah, I have a long review about Carousel, and yeah. they, where they did a brilliant... Uh, Nicholas Heitner, who I also profiled, did a, a wonderful production, which really souped it up and made it work wonderfully well, much better. Who didn't like the original? But nonetheless, this made it more vivid and more sociologically accurate, and that was a multicultural cast, and it was all it was terrific. But the there are some there are some uh, the, the approach to say Samuel Beckett is almost religious, and people will not the estate. I, I know this because my agent represents the Beckett estate. Uh, they they will not allow any variation on the the text and the text has been written in stone by Beckett so every move every moment is indicated now that can be good it's possible but it gives the actor no freedom and there are some areas i mean this is why waiting for godot and its premiere in america was so fraught and why my father in the end won the day because the director in florida alan schneider wanted him to do it just the way Beckett's stage direction said. My father wanted to move. He didn't want to change the meaning, but he wanted to, in order to express Estragon, he needed to move. It turned out that he was right, but with another director who would be able to handle that. But you see, there's a kind of reverence that loses from Beckett the riotousness of Beckett. I mean, if you met, I knew Beckett, and if you met Beckett, the thing that is shocking, of course, is he talked with an Irish brogue, didn't he? So his voice is very light. And so that all these heavy things were doubly hilarious because actually there was a little smile in it. You know, they, they, weren't, they weren't heavy and grave. The voice was, uh, the, 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 the voice was droll. And uh, so if you, if you start to hear it that way, it's not that it's less meaningful. It's probably more meaningful when it's... Uh, when it's leavened with humor. You put it in the back of your mind. It's an interesting interesting idea. Um, <clears throat> one final question, <clears throat> I think we're both, one final question about Williams, um, because, you know, we know the great movie version of all Williams has to be Streetcar. Correct. What other Williams plays were decently turned into film. I know Baby Doll was, but that was... Well, I, I, my own feeling, first of all, is you're right in saying that Streetcar Named Desire was 
one of the best film versions of his plays, up to a point. But it is not uh, particularly satisfying because the film version completely changes the meaning of Williams's play and turns it upside down. In the play, at the end, Stanley and Stella and their baby are left sitting on a steps and he's fondling her and the family goes on. They essentially have agreed the lie that Stanley did not rape Blanche and the family coheres and life goes on. So they pursue their desires and Blanche has been sacrificed for the lie of the family. Now, in Hollywood at the time, of course, it was not possible for someone to rape someone and not be punished. At, w- at one point, if you look into it, uh, they wanted to have Stanley tried at court. <laughs> but they settled for Blanche taking, uh, for Stella taking the baby and going upstairs to Eunice's and saying, you'll never see this baby again. And so he's never, he's, he's uh, rejected at the end. So it's, it misses the entire point of the play, which is much more mischievous and true. Um, the only uh, I I don't like the films uh, as a whole. I think even the sensational performances of Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman in Cat in the Hot Tin Roof miss the miss the the feeling and it's it's vulgar uh, the film in many ways. Suddenly uh, last summer, Williams hated rightly. Uh, it's just a, a bad adaptation by Gore Vidal. The other the and and Baby Doll uh, was a. I think is a mess, and Williams really sort of didn't write it. Kazan took the scenes that Williams threw over to him and uh, sort of organized it. The one I think solid movie is Night of the Iguana, which keeps, although it even at that opts for a slightly upbeat ending, uh, which is not what Williams had in the play. It keeps to the spirit, and there are a lot of good performances in it. And uh, I think that's a, a, a pretty good movie. I, I think it's sad in a way, but perhaps inevitable, that most people know Williams from the screen rather than the theater. But what they're seeing on the screen is not really what Williams wrote. Well, there were a couple of um, television versions. Uh, I think there's a Jessica Lyon Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Uh, yeah. with Kim Stanley as Big Mama. Yeah, that could have been okay, I suppose. Although I don't think uh, my own view is that Jessica Lange couldn't cut it. Uh, but that's my view. Sorry, Jessica. Uh, <laughs> John Lahr, now that you're no longer doing the reviews, you're still writing the um, you're still writing the profiles. I understand you're thinking about writing a biography of Mike Nichols. No, I I I I, I thought. I was writing a biography. I was thought of doing it. I was writing a book with Mike okay. prior to his death. We were talking about it. It got to the contract stage, and Mike. It was not about Mike Nichols's life, but his art and his actors and dealing with actors and the problems of making the kind of entertainments that he did. And that's a form of biography. Uh, but. I think it would be fair to say that Mike felt that he couldn't be Mike Nichols anymore, a sort of purveyor of aplomb. So he withdrew. And I discovered that when I came back, literally on this tour, that uh, a very good writer, Mark Harris, who is the uh, husband of Tony Kushner, uh, is writing uh, the biography of Mike Nichols, and that'll be a good book. So what have you got up your sleeve? You know, I'm I'm going to... I'm going to rest on my laurels for a while, but I've I've been asked to write a play, 
and I may do that. And I, I'm, I'm toying with a book about, and you don't laugh. It's it's sort of autobiographical, but it's about fly fishing. <laughs> so I don't know. I, the answer is I don't really know. But it's been, you know it took twelve years to write the, uh, the. Uh, Williams biography, and you know, after you pushed a stone like that up the, the up up the up the hill, you wanna you wanna rest. I mean, the book, much to my delight, has done even better than I expected it would. So, uh, I'm I'm gonna enjoy life. I have a granddaughter. <laughs> well, you've also not written any novels for forty years. Yeah, well, I found that I might I could always do that, but I, to be truthful, I found a, a criticism and right and and thinking with the people that I write about entirely satisfying. I didn't feel that I needed to, uh, I could express myself through these people in a way that I enjoyed. Uh, So, you know, I don't believe, I think that the word creative writing is a bad phrase. Uh, I don't think that one form of writing is any more or less creative than any other. There's just good writing and bad writing, and that comes in every genre. So, I, uh, you know, I, I'll settle for that. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.